Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is why Christians meet every Sunday. How significant is the resurrection of Christ? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ centuries ago have to do with us? Soon after Christ was raised from the dead, the church in the city of Corinth was not sure that it was very significant at all. The city of Corinth was an influential city economically, culturally, much like the city of Dubai in the ancient world. It was a young church plant, obviously many new Christians, and they needed instruction, doctrinal instruction, ethical instruction. And they had some Christians in their midst who believed that Christ had been raised from the dead, but they did not believe that Christians would be raised from the dead. They were much like many of the Greeks that lived in their own city. They believed in some existence, a shadowy existence of the soul after death. They did not believe that the body would be raised. Ever the good pastor and missionary, the apostle Paul in this letter instructs them again and again doctrinally because bad doctrine leads to bad ethics. Wrong beliefs Lead to, lead to a wrong way of life. This church had a massive doctrinal problem. They did not understand the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Do you understand the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? I'm not asking if you believe it happened. I'm asking if you understand its full significance. That's what we'll think about this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, this is a book in the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible, about midway through the New Testament. And the big number is the chapter number, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to work through 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. 12 through 28. This is a long chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. But I want you to see this main point from these verses. For you, Christian, Christ's resurrection from the dead changes everything about your past, present, and future. Christ's resurrection changes everything about your past, your present, and your future. Two points this morning. One, a world without resurrection. And two, a world interrupted by resurrection. A world without resurrection and a world interrupted by resurrection. May the Lord apply his word to your heart this morning. Let's begin by seeing a world without resurrection. Look at verses 12 through 19, a world without resurrection. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep, and Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever played or heard of devil's advocate? Devil's advocate is is arguing the opposing position so that the person you're arguing with gets a bit more clarity. I, I would never say that the Apostle Paul advocates for the devil. But here, what's Paul doing? He's taking the Corinthians at their word that in verse 28, as some say, there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, to be clear, Jesus taught all Christians will be raised. The the scriptures clearly teach that when the risen Christ returns, Christians will be raised bodily and inherit a new world. Corinthians didn't understand that. They didn't believe that. And what does Paul do? He says, okay, have it your way, Corinthians. I want to show you what a world without resurrection looks like. And then he makes this series, uh, these series of arguments. If this, then that. If this, then that. You would know this if you've ever taken a standardized te- test with a logic se- section. Paul sets up this entire scenario in verse 13 that hinges on a world where there's no resurrection. If, as you say, Corinthians, that Christians will not be bodily raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And then like a boulder, slowly rolling down a mountain that picks up more and more momentum, Paul shows all these logical consequences if Christ has not been raised. You cannot have one if you don't take the other. They're they're a unity, a package deal. And if Christ has not been raised, what's the first consequence? One, our preaching is in vain. When Paul says preaching here, he's specifically referring to the message that Christ died for sins and was raised. And of course, if the message is not trustworthy, the proclamation is pointless. If Christ has not been raised, preaching is in vain. It produces no results. It's useless. But if the resurrection is true, then Christian preaching is of maximum usefulness because the message and the proclamation itself are backed by the power of God, the power of the risen Christ through the Spirit. We proclaim this message when we tell our friends or our family about the risen Christ, those who don't believe. We are doing this right now. The reason this is not nonsense, that a room full of people would sit here quietly 
And listen to a man standing up and proclaiming without any dialogue the truth of the scripture is if Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, if he hasn't been, we're all wasting our time. Better to have stayed home. The church of Christ hinges on preaching. And if Christ is not raised, the church fails. I have more than a hunch that the church of the risen Christ will not fail. Not just preaching that is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Verses 14 and 17. Now, I want you to see that the scriptures do not present faith as much of the world understands faith. In our world, faith is privatized. It's therapeutic. It's often viewed as something that is helpful in your own personal private life, but it has no basis in reality. I think that's why it's, it's not unusual as a Christian to talk to someone who's, who's not a Christian, who's not believed on Christ, about sin and death and the cross and the resurrection, and for them to respond, I'm so glad that's helpful or good for you. Without even realizing it, they understand that faith functions like a crutch that has no basis in objective, transcendent reality. They also don't realize that they too have faith. It might be you. You see faith as something that helps you cope or, or get through life, but it doesn't correspond to actual reality out there. You might be happy for all of us this morning. Thank you. But it has no basis in your life. That's not how Paul, that's not how any of the scriptures understand faith. Your faith rests on what is either worthy of it, can hold it, or it doesn't. Either what you're doing with your life is based on something true or not true. Whether that's following a path or performing prayers, or maybe doing nothing at all. Your faith in that way either corresponds to reality or it doesn't. Paul does not say, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, no sweat. Glad it's helpful. He says it's vain. It's useless. But then consider, if Christ has been raised, it means at this moment, in the present, we have real forgiveness of sin. We can enjoy real communion with the living and eternal God. Your present is eternally transformed. But if you have it your way, Corinthians, no bodily resurrection, then useless, vain faith. And even more, Verse 15, he says, we are found to be misrepresenting God. We're, we're telling a lie about God because we're announcing to the world, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I have a feeling, if I don't know you, you would be totally offended if, if I told a lie about you. How much more God? If the church announced to people all over the world that God did something that he in fact did not do. Doesn't it matter if we tell a lie about God? 
Now, of course, that is also true and a great offense to believe something about God or what God thinks about something that God does not think. Take, for example, sin. It's not loving to approve of what God says is wrong. The Corinthians are separating the resurrection of Christ from the resurrection of Christians. What part of God's word embarrasses you? What part of God's word do you hide from or do you think that you need to just take out? Why? Do you believe that you're wiser or the culture as it is at the present moment is wiser than the eternally good, trustworthy word of God? It all goes together. Christian faith is not like walking into a grocery store and picking what you want and leaving the rest behind. When I was playing sports growing up, our coach would often tell us, tell our team, that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Meaning that no matter how strong a chain is at any point, if one link is weak, if it's fragile, the chain breaks. Each part mattered. The chain can be separated by one weak point. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Christ is like a chain that cannot be separated from the resurrection of other Christians, from other truths. So if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Your preaching is in vain. And we are lying, blaspheming apostles. And then notice what else in verse 17. You are still in your sins. Now, this might be the point where you think this apostle has gotten way too narrow. What does this mean? I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. Go back just a few pages. 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 through 11. Paul there tells the Corinthians that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gets a bit more specific to help us. He says the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. And such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified. Did you hear that? And such were some of you. The church does not stand looking down on the world from a moral high ground. The church stands beneath the cross looking up to our all-sufficient, gracious, loving Savior. And if there is no resurrection of Christ, all that was in your past, your sin, is not washed You are still in your sins. And if you are in your sin, your past defines you. You cannot outrun its shadow. We could never read if Christ has not been raised. And such were some of you. What does it mean to be in your sins? It means to be under the power and the penalty of sin. 
So apart from the resurrection of Christ, there would be no hope of ever being out from under sin's power. Now, the strangeness of our world from the the vantage point of heaven is that many people have no idea they are under the power of sin. They live their lives thinking they're free, but they are in fact slaves to sin. Now, imagine this. Imagine your whole life you've been in jail. That's how you were born. It's all you know. You know nothing of the world outside of prison. You may think you have freedom when you're allowed to go to the cafeteria or to the the courtyard. But in reality, you don't even know what real freedom is. That's what it's like to be in your sin. You can do nothing but sin, even when you do something good if you're in your sins. Under its power, you do the good for self-serving reasons. Sin has turned us inward when we were meant to live Godward lives. So that's sin's power. The one who's in their sins is the slave of sin. And it also means to be under sin's penalty. Sin pays wages. Its wage is death. Sin's penalty is the judgment of the very good God who always opposes evil. And apart from the resurrection, this penalty looms for everyone. So our world often sees sin as as trivial, insignificant. The scriptures don't. Sin is, is not just the what of your life. More deeply, it is also the why's. Now, what you do, obviously, can be sinful. But what you do can be done because of a why that is sinful. Motivated by your own praise, not God's. The belief that somehow, if, if you do that, whatever that is, God will be in your debt. He'll owe you. That somehow we as mortals, sinful mortals, can put the eternal God in our debt. And only Christianity claims that sin's power and penalty have been defeated by a man being raised from the dead. But if there's no resurrection, you remain in your sins like a prisoner who, no matter what he does, is still in prison. We would not be washed. We would not be justified. We would be defined by our past. It would not say not such were, but such are. Some of you. What is the last time, if you're a Christian, that the thought that your past really does not define you brought you great joy in the risen Christ? That the sin that once ruled your life has been defeated, paid for at the cross. Christian Christ's resurrection means you are not who you were. Christ, God sees Christ. So don't run back to slavery when the risen king has made you free. The resurrection changes your past. It changes your present. But the Corinthians also weren't so sure about the future. Verse 18, Paul says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This term fallen asleep is a term that Paul uses 
about death for only those who have trusted in Christ. So death does not mean someone has simply gone to a better place. Scriptures never say there's justification by death. Paul does not say if Christ has been raised, it's only the soul. Well, there is no existence. There's just destruction. That's what's meant here by perished. Death is it. The curtain closes forever. Our past defines us, and there's no future for us. And so it does make sense when we come to verse 19 that if there is no resurrection, a world without it, if our hope is in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I think it's natural for all of us to pity entire societies. Think North Korea people who live under a regime that is totally based on a lie. There's nothing admirable about believing a fairy tale. We would pity any adult who lives in a fantasy land. There's nothing noble for sacrificing your life for a lie. If there's no resurrection of Christ, if our hope is only for this life, does it matter how many good deeds or even things that you do, maybe to serve the greater good, you should be pitied because you based your life on something that's just not real. Vain preaching, vain faith, being in sin, worthy of pity. Paul will not let us have a Christian faith that does not understand the bodily resurrection of Christ because there is no Christian faith apart from the resurrection. To to try to separate the the, the raising of Christ from the dead from the raising of the Christian from the dead is, is to try to separate a chain that cannot be broken. The world is a dark place apart from the resurrection. Your life, my life, are dark places apart from the resurrection. In marriage, we rightly say that what God has joined together, let no man separate to the Corinthians who were trying to separate the resurrection of Christians from the dead from the bodily resurrection of Christ. Paul was saying what God has joined together, let no man separate. Oh, I don't want to live in a world without a resurrection. I praise God that I don't have to because our world really has been shockingly interrupted by a resurrection. That's our our second point, a world interrupted by resurrection, a world interrupted by resurrection. Look down at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. But, what an absolutely glorious word in Scripture. It tells us of another reality. Here, after the darkness of our world and our lives, without a resurrection, hear these words slowly. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The world has been interrupted by a resurrection. The resurrection is is not a private truth. It's a public fact. It happened. People saw it. That's how Paul began this chapter. Look back to verses 3 through 8 in this chapter. Paul began by making clear that he delivered to the Corinthians what was of first importance, what he received, not what he made up, that Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day, and then notice down at verse 5, he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. Then verse 6, more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive. Then to James, and last of all, to Paul. Paul can say, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead because it was not a myth made up to help people get by. It was witnessed to by over 500 people. I want you to think about eyewitness testimony. It matters. I mean, how do you know where you were born? How do you really know? Because you're relying on an eyewitness that you trust is telling you the truth. That's, that's the same truth for something that happened yesterday that you didn't see to something that happened centuries ago. You rely on eyewitness testimony. It's either credible or it's not credible. Scriptures give us every reason to believe that the eyewitnesses' accounts are credible. Nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that faith in Christ is a leap from reason. Faith in Christ is the most reasonable place and person in which you can put your faith. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's fact. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep is the theological consequence. The first fruits is like the down payment. Guarantees more is coming. Christ, the first fruits of a great harvest that is coming, but not of crops, of people of Christians, those who've died in hope, in faith, in Christ. What what Christ has set in motion cannot be stopped. Where he goes, we go. There's a unity between these two events because we are united by faith to Christ. Look at the, the logic here. Look at verse 21. By a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Look at this argument. First of all, notice, Paul does not say that Adam was a myth. He's an historical person. What happened in the garden was not a a fairy tale. Second, Adam's life was a representative life for others. What he did in the garden was not this 
private thing between him and God. He was a public man representing others, the the entire human race. God has ordered, he's arranged the human race so that we live under a representative head. You know, we're not born into this world independent of the rest of humanity. We're born in Adam. He's our head. So Adam's destiny, death, was the destiny of everyone. That's why Satan went one-on-one with Adam. You notice he doesn't do that all the time in Scripture. Satan understood what was at stake in Adam's life, and so he tempted him in the garden, and he defeated Adam. And Adam was sent out into the wilderness. What's the consequence? By him came death. In Adam, all die. And so what was needed was a new and a better Adam. In Genesis, with every new birth, we wonder, is this the new Adam? There's that drumbeat of death. Think of Genesis 5. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. This drumbeat began in Adam's life. But a better and a last Adam has come. By this man comes resurrection from the dead. Verse 22, in Christ shall all be made alive. So what we learned of Adam, we learn about Christ. Christ was a real person. In the Gospels, we meet the real, living, historical Jesus of Nazareth, whose birth and life, his miracles and his teaching, his death and his resurrection were seen, were witnessed to by many. And second, his life was not a private life. His life represented others. And that's why Satan went one-on-one with Jesus as well. He understood what was at stake in the wilderness when he tempted him. And Jesus defeated Satan and so opened the door for those who are in him to go back into the garden. Both men's lives determined destiny. By his sin, Adam brought death. By his death and resurrection, Christ has brought life in and under Adam. The entire human race is condemned in and under Christ. A new race has begun, not defined by the flesh, but by the Spirit. The new humanity does not share death as our destiny. That's what Paul says in verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So when Paul says in verse 22, in Christ shall all be made alive, he's not referring to every person without exception. He is referring to all who belong to Christ. So Christ's resurrection in the middle of history will lead to the resurrection of millions and millions of people who are in Christ at the very end when he comes. Christ has been raised, but the end has not yet come. Two real men, two real lives, two real destinies. The question is, are you in Adam Or are you in Christ? I know it's Easter. And maybe you've come because, well, it's Easter. And you thought it a good thing to do. I am genuinely glad you're here. I hope you'll stay for lunch. I do want you to think, though, that if Christ has been raised from the dead, the resurrection of Christ demands more of us than an occasional church service. This is either true or, to use Paul's own words, it's, it's in vain. 
Why did God the Son take on flesh and live and die? Because this world is not as it's supposed to be. We are far more sinful than we understand. We have sinned and we are sinful. We've not loved the God who's made us with all our mind, soul, and strength. Instead of obeying God, we have wanted to be God of our lives. And this rebellion has spread to all men. Death has spread to all men. God would be good to judge us. He doesn't need us. He's God. But, but, rather than condemning us, God has sent his own son into the world who's voluntarily come to take on flesh and live among us. If you'd seen Jesus, you wouldn't have recognized him by his appearance. It was by how he lived his life perfectly to undo what Adam had done, to die and to be raised for sinners. And he now reigns. The resurrection of Christ means this, that the one crucified is now Lord of the universe, a public fact. And so you cannot remain neutral to Christ. Eternal life requires absolute perfection. Do you have that to offer to God? Jesus Christ does. And his resurrection from the dead proves it. Don't try to hide your sins or cover your sins. The risen Christ loves to properly cover sins with his righteousness. Is the risen Christ calling you this morning? Repent. Believe in Christ. Forsake your own life and find life, resurrection life in him. His resurrection will lead to many resurrections. What happened that first Easter morning cannot be rolled back. The world, as hard as it might try, cannot put the risen Christ back into the tomb. And this world will not go on forever. Paul is so clear. There's an end date. His coming, verse 24, the end will come. Christ will deliver the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. Every king has a kingdom, a domain over which they they reign. And then those who live under that reign. God is the great king over all kingdoms. And in Christ, God has established a kingdom. Those who have repented and bowed the knee to the risen king, trusted him, live under his reign savingly. Right now, Christ's kingdom exists in this world, even in the midst of his enemies. Where do you see Christ's kingdom? In the church. It's the church that affirms who are the true members of Christ's kingdom. It's the church through baptism that announces to the world who are the citizens of this kingdom. That's why if you're a citizen of this kingdom, you must be identified. You you have to join with the church. That's how the kingdom is made visible. Have you thought about doing that here? Joining with us as we proclaim Christ and make the kingdom together visible in this place. Because in the end, at his coming, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Now he reigns as the Messiah presently in the midst of his enemies in this world. 
in this present age, but in the end, he will no longer reign in the midst of his enemies. He will destroy them. 4 verse 26, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, centuries before this text, in Psalm 110, King David wrote this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Not long ago, I actually saw an ancient throne in Egypt. And at the very bottom of it was a footstool. And on the footstool were the names of the king's enemies. The enemies that that king had conquered. He put his foot on them to demonstrate his rule. And here's King David in that context saying Yahweh was promising the future Davidic king that his enemies would be his footstool. And what is Paul doing? He's taking that psalm and applying it to the risen Christ. So many Jews in the ancient world expected that the Messiah would come and immediately usher in his reign. What was not expected was a suffering Messiah who would conquer through crucifixion and be raised and reign in the middle of history and history would just keep going. But that's where we are now. Christ is raised and reigning now in the midst of his enemies. He's reigning in his mediatorial kingdom and soon all of his enemies will be put under his feet. And here is Paul saying Christ has put his enemies on notice. Even the last enemy, death. That is not anyone's friend. It's not just a releasing of the soul peacefully apart from the risen Christ from the body. It is an enemy. It is the last enemy. What a sign that we live in a fallen world that death is normal and resurrection life is strange. Death is the interruption to this world that was created for resurrection life. Do not ever drive past a graveyard or a funeral and think that's normal. Death is terrible. We were not made for death in this world and we are not who we once were. Can you imagine the day that is coming when death is over? The day when death is a memory forever, when you will never hear again that someone has died. The resurrection gives you total permission to imagine that day. More thinking on that day will make us more faithful. In these days, the resurrection frees us from living in the present as if it's just ultimate, thinking that we have to get as much as we can out of this world or our lives before death. Death will be destroyed. It will not have the last word in this world. God will put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. So what does it mean in verse 28 when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul is not saying that there is a hierarchy in the triune Godhead. Each person of the Godhead is equal Paul is saying in the work of redemption, each person of the Godhead carries out a different role. Paul is emphasizing here the Son's work in history as the Son of Man who delivers to God the kingdom. What we saw in Daniel 7. 
Now he reigns as the resurrected son of man over the world with his enemies present. But soon all powers will be in subjection to him. The son will deliver the kingdom to God the father. And as the son of man, God will reign in eternity through Christ. With the result being God may be all in all. History has a destiny. God will be all in in all. God will get the glory that is his due for eternity. His every purpose for history will be fulfilled. And we who are in Christ, united to him by faith, will be raised to reign in that new world. The resurrection changes not just your life, but the destiny of the world. It's not an event that happened on the margins. It is the event. History moved toward the resurrection. History is moving away from the resurrection to that day when God will be all in all. Now, this has massive implications for your life. It means you do not have to live for what this world lives for. You'd have to if it, it didn't happen. You're now free to lose your life because this world is not ultimate. This life is a preparation for life, a quality of life that at this present moment we cannot fathom. Lose your life. Christ has been raised. I wonder what you spend your money on or you spend your life on or you give your time to or what you actually believe. What does that say about what you think about the resurrection of Christ from the dead? The resurrection frees you to live faithfully for Christ's name, to make his name known, to be obedient to Christ, although it's unnoticed now, it tells you it will not be overlooked then. The resurrection frees you to lose your life because the resurrection means you will get your life back. The resurrection also means it guarantees all things must work for your good, Christian. All things. Did you see how Paul is speaking here of the divine necessity of what must happen? He must reign until all things are in subjection to him, when all things are subjected to him. Because you're united to Christ by faith, you will go where Christ goes. All things must work for good for you. That circumstance in your life right now that you don't want to be in, the resurrection means it is working for your good part of your life you don't like that trial that won't end that is so confusing in ways you can't fathom right now working for your good the resurrection means that we can simply rest trusting that while we don't know how we can simply believe everything will be okay more than okay Glorious. If God can raise Christ from the dead, He can work your circumstances for unfathomable good. And the resurrection means so clearly Christ wins. That's the destiny of history. God will be all in all. That a great public victory is coming. We can suffer now. We're free to let the world go by to know no gain nor loss, but to live our lives beneath 
the cross because our head is going to take us where he is. You ever notice how when the scriptures speak of the glory that is coming, the assumption is that we will think too little of it? Not too much. We think too little of our great salvation. We think too little of how radically the resurrection has changed the world. Does the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth rest in a little way on you? How will the certainty of the resurrection of Christ change your week next week? Will you choose obedience? Or will you choose something lesser that is more alluring? Will you take that risk when your comfort tells you to take an easier way? Oh, Christian, live as if victory is coming. Because it is. Easter means we're not to be pitied at all. Easter means that what God has done in the world and his salvation really is too good to be true. Except it's true. Astonishingly, in Christ, we're going to inherit a whole new world. I think at Easter, Christians often think we've got to defend the resurrection of Christ to the world. There's certainly a place for that. But did you notice in this chapter what Paul is doing? He is defending and unpacking the full truth of the resurrection of Christ for the church, for us. If we fail to grasp the fullness of the resurrection, the world will never see its power. The resurrection means that our preaching and our faith are not in vain, and neither are our lives or our labor. This is an astonishingly long chapter. Paul is defending and proving and unpacking the resurrection. And then I find personally the conclusion of the whole chapter so surprising. Look all the way down to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The extraordinary reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes the most ordinary things about your life. In the Lord, your faithful labor is not in vain. Your ordinary faith, your ordinary labors in the Lord will one day, if we believe this, will lead to something extraordinary. Soon, faith will turn to sight. And for all eternity, Christ will be all in all. Live in view of that day. Because in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen.